Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Tuesday, September 6th. I hope everyone was able to enjoy their uh, long Labor Day weekend. And on the phone with me today is Asit Sharma, our senior consumer and retail specialist calling in from Raleigh, North Carolina. Asit, really, really happy to have you back, man. How are you? I am great, Vincent. I am thrilled to be back, especially after a really relaxing, long uh, holiday weekend, doing something I love, which is chatting about consumer goods with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Asit, uh, on my commute into Virginia uh, to head to full headquarters today, I I felt like there was this energy and tension in the air because it happens to be the first day of school for a lot of Northern Virginia. So, we're talking about, in this area, probably hundreds of of thousands of kids, you know, hopping on buses, getting going to school for their first day. Um, what about your home state of North Carolina? School in session? Yeah, school is back in session. Uh, many kids went back to school last week. I've got uh, three boys, and my two oldest ones are in a charter school, which actually started on the 10th of August. So I definitely have dipped into that energy. Um, our household has been geared up and back to school. And I tell you, there's something about sending kids back to school that makes me want to learn something new. So I think this is a great topic for today. Let, let, let you and I and our listeners go back to school. Yes, I'm very glad that, uh, you know, with that lead in, essentially, um, we have the honor of introducing a special back to school theme week for Industry Focus. Uh, our goal this week is really just to take some investing concepts, uh, break them down together, and then put them into context with some you know sector specific examples. So today, or you know, Asit, or I should call you really Professor Sharma, I yeah. will give you the honor of introducing the first topic of the week. You know, what are we discussing? Sure. Today we are discussing return on invested capital. Um, you probably hear this referred to as ROIC, or maybe see this on articles um, on companies that you follow on the web. And I'll tell you, it can be a mystical type of concept, but today we're going to break it down in a way that you can use it when you invest in companies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is actually a metric that I learned a lot about when I was in school for you know finance and accounting. And I did not see as often as I would have expected, you know, looking back on it, knowing how important it is now, actually during my time on Wall Street. Um, but I think it is a really uh, nice metric, I think, to pair with other common measures, like a lot of people hear about uh, PE ratios, for example. But overall, I think this is just another tool investors should have when they're evaluating a stock. And I think we have some really great examples with popular companies in the consumer retail sectors that we can kind of put this into perspective for. But you know, right off the uh, you know right off the bat, I think it's important, you know, for anybody who's not as familiar with ROIC, you know, what is it? ROIC is actually a profitability ratio, um, and it measures how efficiently a company uses its own capital. Now, I'm going to pause here because, Vince, you've been to school in finance, and, and I have too, but this concept of capital is actually sort of mysterious, so I'd love if we just take a, a moment here to talk about what capital is. So, capital is the money that a company raises in its initial public offering any follow-on stock offerings, plus company that a money a, a company may borrow uh, in issuing bonds, taking on other types of debt, plus any profits a company makes 
uh, as that it chooses to reinvest in its business. Now, if you think about all these sources of funds, all these monies, once those get invested into assets, those assets are often referred to as invested capital. So when you hear this idea of return on invested capital, you can think of a profitability-type return on monies that have been invested into capital, which makes a business go, into assets, which make a business go. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, on air, it'll be it's a little bit more difficult for us, I think, to kind of break down the th- uh, with ROIC the actual calculations because, frankly, there are quite a few different ways to approach it. So, I don't think we're going to get into as much the nitty gritty. There are plenty of resources uh, if, if to basically on the different approaches of how to calculate it, but you know, more on the application, I think, and you know how it can come into play when you're evaluating a stock uh, is probably a better you know way for us to focus on it on air. Yeah, we'd like to grasp this concept at 30,000 feet and really discuss today uh, with our listeners how you can get an edge over fellow investors if you can get this big picture of a company's profitability on those assets it's put to work. Okay. So, all right, we have this general idea of, you know, what ROIC is and I think the best way uh, to really get the to really um, solidify your understanding is just look at our first example, which I, I think is really interesting because it involves an activist investor, uh, a company that uh, that I've always been following and am frankly a fan of their product, their product offering, and that's Buffalo Wild Wings. So the stock's down about 20% in the past year. Uh, investors have kind of been forced to acclimate themselves to a more modest quarterly reports as same store sales, for example, have swung from very impressive growth previously to negative levels for the first two quarters of 2016. And, you know, it is with that, this activist investor has been voicing its concerns publicly. And its biggest complaint, very coincidentally, has a lot to do with our back to school topic, and that's a return on invested capital. True. Uh, that activist investor is called Marcado Capital Management. They've got a 5.2% stake. Uh, in Buffalo Wild Wings, which is a pretty big stake, and it can throw their weight around a little bit. Um, so they issued this letter in mid-August uh, with the obligatory accompanying slide deck, which is a hefty presentation that goes through so many things that, in the hedge fund's opinion, is wrong with the ma- way management is running the business. But I've read through that presentation, and they're really zeroing in on the fact that they don't think Buffalo Wild Wings is using its capital efficiently. Um, so let's back up here and, and look at the quick service industry or fast casual industry, related industry in general. Um, one thing that is par for the course when you have a successful restaurant business is to start franchising your name and, and letting franchisees come and open up businesses. You can expand more quickly. It's very profitable because they are putting in the capital to open the stores, and you're not. One great example of that is Burger King. Many of our listeners um, are familiar with Burger King as an investment, and that's nearly 100% franchise. But Buffalo Wild Wings is actually going the opposite way, against the, the grain or against the trend. They're actually buying back their own franchisees, um, and the hedge fund thinks that this is a big mistake because it points out that Buffalo Wild Wings is acquiring franchisees at about 50% above replacement cost. So when we think of what it costs 
a company to open its own restaurant versus granting a franchise, which is extremely capital-like, versus going out into the market and buying back one of its restaurants, if, if you were in that driver's seat, you probably would want to avoid option three because, Vince, um, if I approach you and say, hey, how's, how's that franchise going with Buffalo Wild Wings? And you say, wow, I said I'm making lots of money. If, if I then try to um, purchase your restaurant, you're going to ask top dollar. But this is exactly what Buffalo Wild Wings is doing, and the shareholders are not happy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Granted, there I think there are a few exceptions here and there in the restaurant industry. It is a very uh, strong trend with this uh, the franchising strategy. You know, we talked... I spoke last week with Sarah Priestley about McDonald's, for example, and part of their turnaround efforts has been pushing more uh, into the franchising side. But here, uh, you bring up the really good example: is if I'm an owner of one of these franchises and the you know the corporate headquarters comes to me and I'm generating a ton of cash, really happy with uh, you know generally my sales, the performance of my location, I know that. This is more of a you know strategic buy for you, and so like you mentioned, I can ask for top dollar, and it seems to me like uh, Buffalo Wild Wings management is very much willing to pay that as well, and that's taken a, a negative toll uh, on some of the company's uh, results, or specifically with their uh, return on capital, and why Mercado Capital Management is you know weighing in with this kind of very public airing of grievances. Is two interesting points related to that. One is, as you mentioned, their return on invested capital has declined um, almost five percentage points from 22% to 17% over the last year. And the second point, which is fascinating, is, well, why would Buffalo Wild Wings be doing this? Why not just take capital and build restaurants at cost and then create these new revenue streams? Marcado points out that Buffalo Wild Wings management is incentivized to grow revenue and profit without regard to cost of capital. So when you buy that restaurant, you're buying its revenue too, which you can then put on your books, and that creates the bonus in management's pocket. So that's part of the reason why this hedge fund and and other investors are fired up at the way um, Buffalo Wild Wings is using its capital. Yes. that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, when it, I think a lot of things in investing and just in life in general, it comes down to incentives like that, frankly. And there is a very clear one if you're compensating management based on these other metrics. Um, I don't know. It's, it's it's almost hard to blame them for pursuing that. And and obviously, I'm sure they're happy with theirs, but with those bonuses. Um, so. Overall, uh, what do you think about this strategy? Do you th- are you do you have concerns? You know, beyond w- I guess tied with Mercado in terms of this having a negative long term impact for Buffalo Wild Wings, or do you think this is something that can work for them? Because the fact is, uh, something I noticed is just that uh, when it comes to, for example, their quarterly uh, comparable sales growth, their operated units do tend to put up better numbers than their franchise units. Right. And that's the counter-argument that I'm sure um, Wild Wings management will make, is that we can go in and take a restaurant which is not operating as efficiently and improve the margins. Um, and I'm actually a fan of some balance. You know, mentioned McDonald's. They actually have a fairly sustainable ratio. Right now, it's 80% units 
are franchised and 20% of the units the company owns, they have a good mix of learning how to operate their own uh, units and then making money on the franchise side. So Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, if their model, is, which is about 50-50 right now, if they sustain that and can improve these, yes, they'll show greater revenue, greater profits. My only concern is that there's some opportunity costs there when they're using, uh, you know, 50% premium of their own dollars to buy these restaurants. You wonder if they couldn't be more profitable instead of trying to go out and reacquire franchises that they think we, we could operate more efficiently. Why not just build them and operate them yourself? Building is better than, than repurchasing at a premium. So I think over the long run, I agree with you. It may not look that bad on the books, um, but I worry about some money that's left on the table the way they're doing it. And we'll see. It's, it's a good dynamic conversation that's going to evolve between uh, Buffalo Wild Wings and its shareholders. So maybe they'll shift that balance. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year coming up to watch this company, which, which we both like. Yes. So, you know, on this one, on the one hand, uh, you know, we kind of started off with this company where I think they're kind of getting dinged on poor uh, management of this this uh, this topic that we have for today uh, with return on invested capital. So let's move on to another company. Uh, and this time we're talking about Whole Foods, which is I feel like they're kind of gearing up in the opposite direction. So again, uh, a really strong brand. They have a market leading presence within uh, their niche, you know, organic and natural foods. But stock price is also uh, been been hurt recently. It's it's actually nearly been halved since early 2015, and uh, admittedly, it's, this weakness has been driven by some of its own success over the past like decade, uh, with just a lot of larger competitors kind of being attracted to the very strong growth that is expected uh, and forecasted to continue among this organic natural food segment. And you know, these bigger competitors are more than happy to appeal to consumers in this you know target market with. Better prices, uh, more convenience since they have bigger uh, store footprints and and networks. So you know, Whole Foods ultimately their market share has kind of been squeezed. Their revenue growth growth is slowing. Uh, margins are getting squeezed too. Uh, but they are turning in another direction with their new strategy. Um, so I'm going to let you dive right into it from there, Asset. Awesome. That's a great overview of Whole Foods, and I'm sure listeners who are invested in this company are eager to know: Hey, when is the stock ever going to move? Uh, the truth of the matter is that the competition the company is facing, coming from all sides, larger operators like Costco and Walmart, uh, smaller ones like the Fresh Market, and it's a multi-year process to reorient how the company does business. Of course, they're going to stick with their flagship stores. They are extremely profitable. They'll keep growing those. But they figured out that a smaller store with a lighter footprint might not be a bad idea. Um, have you had a chance to visit one of the new uh, Whole Foods 365 stores by any chance? No, I have not. Um, I know there's, I think, two of them now that are currently open, but fortunately, both on the West Coast, so I have not seen them yet. Though I've been able to see a walkthrough that uh, one of our writers, Brian O'Reilly, provided, and it's up on Fool.com. He has a lot of great photos, but unfortunately, not in person. Right. Same here. I'm eager to, and hopefully we'll get to one soon. But I want to point out, uh, for Listeners who are in the same situation have heard about this store, but have only read about it. Most of the press coverage has been focused on the fact that these stores offer cheaper prices and they're meant to compete with Trader Joe's. That's what I've seen most often in the financial press. 
But let's look at it from management's perspective. Now, this is a company which actually uh, is incentivized to improve return on invested capital. Whole Foods has a return on invested capital of about 13%, which is really good if you're a grocery store business. Traditionally, in that industry, at the end of the day, you have 1% to 2% profit margins, and you're happy. So an ROIC of 13% is, is pretty darn good. These new stores have a footprint of about 30,000 square feet. The average Whole Foods flagship store footprint is 47,000 square feet. They've got a streamlined design, and it costs them less to build it. They also have really uh, advanced technology, including auto-replenishment of their inventory. So they have advanced analytics that tell them when they need to hit those replenish points and bring more produce back in, um, packaged goods, etc. And so some of the human labor in that instance is not necessary. But because the management team is incentivized to maintain a high ROIC, they started looking at their competition problem differently than they would have in a vacuum. So after a lot of time, uh, and this is, I think, two years of comparable sales which have been slowing, 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 finally went negative, mm-hmm. management decided, let's, let's go ahead and um, approach the problem not from a pricing standpoint, but from a capital standpoint. So you can see if, if your bonus was also dependent on um, re- producing a high ROIC, you might also come to the conclusion that a lighter footprint store, a smaller store, might be the answer versus just opening up more and more of these gigantic 50,000 square foot stores. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, the beauty with the, uh, the you know the whole idea with this concept of 365 by Whole Foods, it, it kind of hits the key challenges that they're being presented uh, with from the competition. You know, the in-house brand offers some, uh, I guess, arguably more competitive pricing, lower pricing than their flagship stores. Um, and then you know they have this smaller footprint. Uh, you know the small store basically allows them to open up in locations, more locations, kind of. Uh, Opening up the number of consumers that kind of have access to one of their uh, their store locations in general, and that convenience factor, and then the price factor are going to be really important for them. Agreed. Um, and if we if we've got just a minute more on this topic, I'd love to make one more point on this relationship between uh, the customer interaction uh, and the return on invested capital. And that is, if you fast forward, let's say, 10 to 15 years, um, and you're in management shoes again, you have customers who, since this just described, really uh, take to this format for convenience and price, um, but you've got to start upgrading the stores, because after 10 years, they start to look a little stale. Well, the cost to replenish that look, to renovate the store, to, to rehab the facade, is a lot less when you've reduced the cost of capital to begin with, when you've made the store smaller, when you've gone for lighter, less expensive materials, than it is versus the traditional Whole Foods market, as I say, again, 50,000 square foot store. So this is the power of paying attention to return on invested capital, sort of evergreen profits for your company. There are economic costs to everything, and if you're efficient today, you can be even more efficient down the road and keep churning out a great economic profit. Yep, that is an awesome point. Uh, you know, I I was thinking about this 
from the get uh, more for more so from the beginning the fact that you know, opening these new stores is going to be less capital intensive but you know 10 years down the line you know taking that longer term more foolish outlook really glad you brought that up cuz that is a really good point uh, where this this taking this perspective that management's focused on with ROIC um, you know it pays dividends down the, down the line obviously and uh, on that note um, for this last topic which I want to uh, you know spend a little bit of time on before we uh, before we have to wrap up here is a company that uh, you know based on our conversation seems to kind of be a, a golden standard I guess in this in yeah. regards to this metric and has uh, done really well, and this is in the hospitality industry, specifically the hotel business, which I think is really well suited to our discussion. Obviously, when you think of you know building a hotel, it's very capital intensive nature uh, of the business. You know, uh, some companies will spend hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars renovating properties or building new ones, but uh, it's it's not as simple as that. Uh, and the company we're talking about is Marriott International. Correct. So Marriott International. It's a brand which has its roots in the early 20th century. And for those of us who are a certain age, um, like myself, uh, full disclosure here, mid-40s, um, I can remember when Holiday Inn was the brand that you went to for when you're on vacation. This is the early 70s. But Marriott was the place where you stayed occasionally. Um, it was a higher-end brand, and still is, and it's continued to... Um, polish its own brand and acquire other uh, very respected brands in the hotel industry. And what it's done is it's transitioned from being an owner-operator of hotels to now what is primarily a franchisor, which also manages property. So they also have some property management revenue. Um, It's got a stable of luxury brands, and those include Ritz-Carlton and very many limited service brands, which all of us are familiar with, including Courtyard and Residence Inn. Um, And I'd like to read uh, a statement for our listeners, which has to do with return on invested capital. And this is from Marriott's CEO, Ann Sorensen. And um, this was in the company's quarter two press release issued just a few weeks ago. And Ann Sorensen says, our business model remains focused on managing or franchising the finest hotel brands around the world. This asset light strategy minimizes our exposure to economic cycles, even as our brands grow their distribution. And so Vince, I'll, I'll be quiet uh, now and let you jump in. Um, just wanted to say that this sort of encapsulates everything we've discussed today, this approach to thinking about your assets and trying to get a greater and greater return on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I was really surprised, uh, you know, as I was learning more about this company. I was uh, not one as I followed as closely, but you know, doing the research for the show, I was blown away to see, uh, you know, in their filings, you know, company operates over a thousand properties, you know, some three hundred thousand rooms, owns six of them, and then its franchise properties on top of that amount to three thousand, another four hundred twenty thousand or so rooms, but. You can see how the model has transitioned, where it's not now. It's not as much owning it, but you know, making the money from the royalty that they get from the franchises, the management fees, the incentive fees, and uh, it's just a really interesting example. I I will let you wrap it up, but I think it's really important to quantify how uh, you know strong. 
the results they've been able to put up, you know, with this metric for our IC is. Marriott is sort of a quiet brand, isn't it? It's, it's, we know it's there, but we don't spend many of us a lot of time looking at the stock. But the stock is up 150% in the last five years. And it's no coincidence that Marriott's ROIC has skyrocketed over the same period to 50%. That is an incredible return on invested capital. But by employing the strategy, uh, management understands that they've got a smaller and smaller capital base, greater and greater revenue, that return will increase. Shareholders love it. Um, And one last point to wrap up today's conversation, we'll stick with Marriott. It's important to trace how your assets may change over time. When you see that you're developing intangible assets, like a really great brand, then it's time to consider whether you should still be investing in the hard assets like the hotels. And Marriott gets that. They want to license their name and and let other people take the capital and take the risk and just collect those royalty checks. Uh, If you're familiar with the hospitality industry, you probably know this term swag. Um, It's what insiders use to describe the various properties. And Marriott has a really desirable flag because of their reservation system. If you're out building a new hotel at the edge of a very robust metropolitan area, you want to be on Marriott's system because you're almost guaranteed enough occupancy to be profitable. And so management leverages that by saying, yeah, go ahead, build it. We'll let you have our trademarks, send us a check every month, and everyone will be happy. All right, thank you, Asit. Uh, really, uh, you know, great takeaway. I think at the end there, um, really like the three companies that we're able to talk about as well, and 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 trying to just put this uh, this metric into context. But otherwise, um, you know, thanks again for coming to the show, and I, I really look forward to having you on again soon. Same here, and listeners, we're, we're out of time. We can't do the pop quiz, but be ready. Next time we do back to school. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. Great, great to chat with you. All right. Well, to continue on that wonderful, uh, you know, theme here. You can come to our office hours via Twitter at MF Industry Focus, <laughs> or send us any questions or comments via email to industryfocus at fool.com. People on the program may own comp- companies discussed on the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.